Hello, and thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. It's been a pretty wild couple weeks in the U.S. and world news. Just last week on Monday, we had the unusual Iowa caucus and the app that didn't work properly. And then on Tuesday, we had a State of the Union address. And then the next day, we had the impeachment acquittal. And the coronavirus is spreading around the world. More people have died from that than SARS. People are divided. People are disillusioned. And this podcast episode addresses none of that. But maybe that's a good thing in some way as our country tries to make tough decisions about our political future, it's probably important to remember self-care. This episode was recorded last month at Spiritual Speakeasy Community in Hinsdale, Illinois, where Maureen Muldoon has helped nurture a beautiful community of people interested in spiritual topics. So I come and speak there from time to time. And we had a nice conversation after the little talk, so I chose to include some of that in this episode, so you'll hear some people asking questions and my responses. We called it this little light of mine, where I had saved it in my phone. There was a typo. I accidentally wrote this little light of mind. And then as I was editing for the podcast, getting the audio together, I thought, well, There's no reason to change it. It's kind of amusing. And it's not exactly what I intended, but I think in some sense, the mind is a certain light and uh, like the light of a light bulb. And then there's another light, like an inner light of electricity. And in different ways, this episode explores that through analogy of different types of light. As I reflect on this episode, I'm also reminded of a little koan that my friend Robert sent me recently. I'll read that to you. It was called a koan for December. But since we're still in the middle of winter, it feels like it's relevant now as well. It is a paradox that we encounter so much internal noise when we first try and sit in silence. It is a paradox that experiencing pain releases pain. It is a paradox that keeping still can lead us so fully into life and being. Our minds do not like paradoxes. We want things to be clear so we can maintain our illusions of safety. Certainty breeds tremendous smugness. We each possess a deeper level of being, however, which loves a paradox. It knows that summer is already growing like a seed in the depth of winter. It knows that the moment we are born, we begin to die. It knows that all life shimmers in shades of becoming, that shadow and light are always together, the visible mingled with the invisible. When we sit in stillness, we are profoundly active. Keeping silent, we hear the roar of existence. Through our willingness to be the one we are, we become one with everything. That's by Gunilla Norris called the paradox of noise. I think the word paradox can be meaningful at this time. When there's so much controversy in the world, it's always black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, either or thinking. And uh, politics also can be very bipolar. Holding the both and in our minds can create 
the openness and flexibility and also the ability to stay tuned with your core values like compassion, patience, wisdom. I just want to share also that didn't get the best audio capture this time. I did what I could to try to get the sound a little bit clearer, but you'll, you'll probably find that it doesn't quite come up to par, but hopefully there's still some value in it. I'd like to let you know about some upcoming events. First of all, there's still a few spots available for the Desert Peace Retreat near Santa Fe, New Mexico at Synergia Ranch, April 9th through the 13th. But those spaces are going very fast, so if you are interested in attending, please reach out soon. You can do so through the website or through any of my social media pages. Send me a message, and I'll give you the instructions to register. But you can find more details on the website, michaeltodfink.com slash events. And I've collaborated with a couple other facilitators, including Claudine, yoga instructor, and uh, Marion and Gabriella Kraus, who do sound healing, and uh, my friend Natalie from Serenity Wellness to present an overnight journey through sound, movement, and meditation at Hotel Indigo in Naperville. So those who maybe are interested in something a little more condensed but immersive, this may be for you. It's March 14th. It starts Saturday afternoon and ends at noon the next day on Sunday. So again, you can visit the website and you can find links to to sign up for that as well. And then the Connecting With You Yoga Retreat in Franklin Grove, Illinois at Lincoln Way B&B is coming up. Um, I've spoken at this retreat many times in the past and I will be there on Saturday, February 29th at 1.30 p.m. to 2.45 p.m. to speak about the eight limbs of yoga. Always adding other events, so please keep checking back on the website or on the social media pages at Michael Todd Fink. That's Instagram and Facebook. And again, thank you for watching the TEDx talk. Beauty is in the brain of the beholder. Please continue to watch with friends and share wherever you can and help spread that message. That would mean a lot to me. And when you're listening to the podcast, if you haven't rated it and reviewed it, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, that would mean a lot as well. That will help people find it easier. That's all I have right now. I hope you enjoyed this episode and looking forward to connecting soon. Thank you. The sun brought all the stars and planets and everything in creation together in a room like this and said, I can't shine 24 hours a day, guys, so I need to know who will take my place when it gets dark. And when the sun said this, the planets all started to look down because they didn't want to do the work of the sun. They liked receiving the light like sunbathing, but they didn't want to share the light. So they looked around hoping someone else would raise their hand. The moon didn't think he could do it because he has different phases and couldn't promise that he would always 
be full. And he thought, even if I am full, I still can't light up the night. All the stars kept quiet because they said, even if it was a clear night and all of us were shining, we still couldn't dispel the darkness. Finally, a little lamp steps forward and says, all right, I'll do it. The sun says, thank you. The little lamp says, I may be small, but I will sacrifice. And as long as I live, I will give light to others. So that little story is about taking care of our inner light. The lamp represents the light within. And the structure of the lamp could be thought of as a symbol for the body. And now that illumination inside has to be maintained. And it's maintained either through oil or through oxygen. But it runs out. And so there's a limited time where we have this light within us. The opposite of light is darkness. Darkness is the source of ignorance in spiritual traditions. If you think of a theater, it has to be dark for the drama to take place. Once the lights are turned off, then the projector can show the movie, and we all suspend reality for some time, and we enjoy the movie. Then at the end, the main hall lights come back on, you can't see anything on the screen anymore, and we wake up from our reverie. So this is what light symbolizes in terms of the spiritual journey. It's a symbol of illumination, of knowledge, of wisdom. There is also something tangible, or something, something that is to be perceived within through meditation and inner light, the light of consciousness, the light of electricity. But at least metaphorically, we can think of it as dispelling the darkness of doubt, of negativity, of ignorance. And so this lamp is a good symbol. Another symbol is the candle. Like the lamp, the candle also needs some fuel. It needs oxygen. And the wax is continuously melting. So the wax is the symbol of the physical body. Day after day, the physical body, the, the materials of the body, want to go back to their constituent parts through entropy. And we don't always realize that the time is short and we have to do something with this light. Giving that light to others, sharing the light like the lamp, isn't about pointing out people's flaws and trying to teach them in that way. It's about shining so brightly that people can see the way for themselves. The obstacles to maintaining the light of a candle are strong wind. Strong wind can be thought of as emotion in the mind. So when we have more anxiety, more anger, the breath gets really fast and chaotic and can knock out that flame of illumination. So trying to think of this as a steady flow of fuel for the fire, for the light within. Also, the light of a candle can go out if it's moving too quickly, if you're carrying the candle too fast. So to try to keep that flame still means we need calmness, we need peace. We can get that peace, we can get that stillness by taking time for meditation, by being in the company of like-minded, spiritually oriented people, and tending to that day in, day out to protect the light. Another symbol is the light bulb. The light bulb that you see in the room that removes the darkness. 
the interesting thing about these balls is they may all be different shapes and sizes, but what makes it possible for them to shine is an invisible source of electricity. Maybe if ancient people knew about electricity, they would have called it the inner electricity instead of the inner light. And it appears as though each of the lights in a room have their own separate existence, their own separate electricity. But really, they're all sharing the same electricity. It's all coming from one same power source. And so on the surface, you may appear different. They may all be different light bulbs, different shapes, sizes, colors, and so on. But there's something hidden that we all share, and that ought to be a source of unity for everyone in the world. And when that bulb burns out, just like when the oil runs out, or when the wax is depleted finally, where does the electricity go? That electricity was never for that bulb alone. It's flowing through everything, and so it just goes on. Just like consciousness may be at the, the ground of everything, not something emergent from the brain, but maybe the brain, all space, time, and matter emerge from consciousness. And so we could think of our brain and our body as essentially interface for consciousness to experience the world. And when that interface is finished, comes off, the electricity goes on, goes on to all the other balls, all the other manifestations in the universe. The last one is fire. Fire is hidden in the wood. The wood is the symbol of the human body. It's, it's material, but how do you get that fire to come out? Well, through some friction. So what we think of as unpleasant is actually the, the, the very technique for illumination. That friction, that uh, sense that the world, people are rubbing us the wrong way is what can create the fire to come to manifest. To keep things uh, comfortable, won't light this fire. We can think of the friction as yoga, as meditation, as some type of self-control, self-discipline or austerity. And the, the wood itself creates the fire. You bring two sticks together and through friction, the fire manifests. And so the last words mostly of the Buddha were, were be a light unto yourself. What does that mean? Well, part of it meant that he was going to be gone. People were saying, what would we do without you? He said, be a light unto yourself. But it also means meta-attention. This is one of the essences of Buddhist meditation, that through the light of the mind, you shine attention on what is the mind. So like the stick and the stick trying to create the fire, with the mind, you try to know the mind. So meta-attention means using your awareness to know what your awareness is doing and to look for the self. And by looking for the self, we realize we're not the candle, we're not the lamp, we're not the wood, we are the fire, we are the light. And so it's, that is the, the spiritual journey in a nutshell, shifting from thinking we have a light, we have a soul, to we are the light, we are the electricity, we are the soul. And the, 
material stuff is going to fade away. But if we can shift our identification from away from ego and the small-mindedness to that light, that eternal light, then there won't be fear of death. And so that is the practice, always preparing for the reality in the interim. And so when that time comes, it will be okay because we already know that we're light. Be a light unto yourself. Use the mind to know the mind, like the stick and the stick coming together, or the thorn to get rid of the thorn. Uh, did you tell us a little bit more about this concept of meta consciousness? You did find it as using the mind to know the mind. I've never really heard of meta consciousness before, and I'm wondering is it available to me? <laughs> yes, it's available to everybody. It's a lot like exercise. Some people think it's not available to them or that they're not suitable to do it because they try to do more than they can in the beginning. So this meta-attention or meditation would ought to be treated as a luxury. If I go to the gym and I try to run more than I can or lift weight that's heavier than I can lift, I might come out of there thinking I'm not suitable for this. But if you do the right amount, you can keep expanding it. So think of this as meta-attention, which means that we want to know what the mind is doing. Scientists hypothesize that we spend about 50% of our day lost in thought, which means we're thinking, but we don't know that we're thinking. We don't know that we're lost in thought. And so becoming aware of that more and more will help a person realize what the mind is. And that's what we're after. We're treating the mind as like a flashlight and finally it's looking inward instead of always chasing things externally. The mind, you will find with this practice, is very much like other organs. We think that we're creating these thoughts. But if we really were creating the thoughts, or the sole author of our thoughts, shouldn't we be able to stop thinking? If I said, don't think for the next five minutes, could you do that? It just keeps going. So I think it's more accurate than to say it thinks, just like the heart beats. I'm not controlling each heartbeat, but we have the sense that whatever comes into this mind is me. And when you start to observe it, you get detachment from it. When a person gets detachment from what the mind is doing, they have less identification with the mind, less identification with the body. This is what leads to freedom. Thank you very much. And uh, Al and Raymond actually were a nice segue into a, a thought that I had. And then when you talk about the candle and the flame, and we, uh, we act individually as a candle or a lamp with our own flame that's visible to the outside. And the, 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 the fallacy is that that is a finite flame. It's yours. And when it goes out, it goes out. But it's there's a, a quantity. But in reality, you can hold a candle next to another candle and they both erupt in the flame. Neither is diminished, but you have twice as much light as you did before. So the question that I have about the, the, the two sticks that Raven talked about with the meta-attention that Al brought up 
Can you talk a bit about that phenomenon of you, you immediately have two planes where a nanosecond before you had one, but they're both attached somehow via a meta consciousness or a meta. What's the common denominator between those two planes once one has stemmed from the other? Well, it's a deep philosophical question, but if you look at the lights in the room, it seems like there's multiple electricities. The multiplicity of flames or the multiplicity of lights is the same thing, still underneath one space that it's manifesting in, and without the space that nothing's manifesting. So there's still something more fundamental than the manifestations, the oxygen underneath it, or with the electricity that's all coming from one source. So it's like the light on the screen. On, in the movie, you can see the, uh, the flame pass from one person to another. But if you turn that attention, with the meta-attention, you're looking back at the projector. So to turn around in the theater and then see, oh, the whole play is coming from there, then there's no more separation. So the meta-attention leads to that. But yes, like in the practical sense, we share our joy, we share our light, we give light to others, we receive light from others. Similar to the way the bulbs are working with appliances and they do all different kinds of things, and yet they all share one electricity. I actually have a question, Todd. Uh, towards the end, and correct me if I misquote you, uh, but you were talking about how through meditation and, and meta-attention, we can distance ourselves from our thoughts. Am I getting that kind of right? Yeah. But isn't... So, I wouldn't necessarily say distance, but uh, detach from identification with that. So then, I guess my question is, what what is our self? It, it occurs to me that that awareness is the essence of who we are. And so, can you speak to my, well, I don't know, confusion? Yeah, I'll do the best I can because it's hard to put into words, but you've heard of higher consciousness and lower consciousness, right? I don't necessarily think higher consciousness or lower consciousness is actually a way of describing more good and less good. For example, if you cut the bridge between the two hemispheres of the brain, corpus callosum, a human being will behave as if there are two subjects in there. there it, it has been done over decades in the past century to mitigate seizure disorders. People have more than 100 seizures a day. If it's more localized or starting in one hemisphere, it may be able to be contained. And at first it seemed like things were fairly normal, but then uh, researchers started to see that there were some strange things because the right hemisphere controls the left side of the body and vice versa. So there were some incidences where subjects would be at the grocery store, pull a box of cereal off the shelf, put it in the cart, and the other hand will put it back. A smoker might be smoking with one hand, set the cigarette down in the ashtray, and the other hand will come and put it out. Because the desire to quit maybe in one hemisphere and the desire to keep using the addiction may be more in a different hemisphere and because they can't communicate there's two so you could say that that's 
uh, an example of lower consciousness, not worse consciousness, that even this side of the brain has its own conscious experience. When we have that closum intact, it still feels like, oh, why can't I get on the same page with myself? Should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? Well, shouldn't there be clarity? We're one person, right? Beneath that, every cell, every neuron has its own consciousness. Okay? And so some researchers actually think that there may be, like Rupert Sheldrake called it a, a morphic field. So there may be a high level of consciousness when we all come together or when we meditate together. Dogs somehow know when their owners are going to come back. And, and experiments have been done where the owner comes back at different times and in different cars. And still, the dog knows to go to, to the door at that time. There's also been studies uh, with home webcams observing dogs reacting at the moment an owner dies somewhere else, like in the car accident. They go back to these cameras and find that the dog knows at that time. It's a higher level of consciousness. Now, to find ourself in all that, well, the Buddha said there is no self. And, uh, and Jesus said, you know, I am the Father, so I am the whole self. So the problem then is in the middle. The, the journey is to go all the way to the lowest point of consciousness till you get to the fundamental nature of reality or to the, the grand design. In between is trouble, but in between is where we get the picture shown. And so we get to experience life that way, but the journey needs to go from either totally diminishing the ego, the idea that I am this finite being in a body, the idea that I am a body and the attachment to that and all the suffering that comes from that. Or in between, you know, we're going up a little bit, but to keep rising is one way to go about it. To make the ego so big that it includes everybody. And that's no longer a bad thing because if I feel you are me, we're not really separate. So when you're suffering, I'm suffering. When you have joy, it's my joy. It's not my jealousy anymore. It's my own celebration. You see, so life gets more beautiful when we can take the ego that high or diminish it through humility, which doesn't mean that I make this body seem like this evil thing. It's just no more or less important than all the other manifestations. And so when you look for the self through meditation, where will you find it? Now this separation or, or detachment from thoughts, look, if I focus in my stomach through meditation, I'll feel that digestion is happening. It's happening. I'm not doing it. I say, let me take some time to digest my food. But what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and then you come up higher into the heart. And I can't make my heart beat the way I want it to. I can't decide I'll hold my heart until I'm ready for the next one. It's beating. Now, things that I think about and that thoughts that come and so on and activities will affect it, but there's no direct lever that I operate. In the throat, you have the endocrine system. Some people have adrenal fatigue and thyroid disease. So clearly they can't just push, they're not pushing the buttons. I'll take this much cortisol and this much adrenaline. It's doing it. Depending on genetics and all of the forces of the universe, all the environmental factors, 
Then you come up into the head, the brain, pituitary, and all of a sudden, that's where I'm doing everything. The thoughts are my thoughts. If it's a negative thought, I'm such a negative person. If it's a suicidal thought, I'm a depressed person, I'm a suicidal person, I'm bad. Somehow we can see it's doing until we get to here and then the ego materializes. The illusion, it's just the illusion that we're thinking. Through meditation, through meditation you start to see, whoa, the mind thinks like the heart beats and you get some freedom from it. Like, if the heart's having trouble, we don't think it says anything deeply about who we are in the most fundamental way. If I get a stomachache, it's not like I think I'm a bad person. If the thought, the brain's not actually functioning as well as it could, we, we lose our sense of uh, position in time and space. We lose our sense of who we are. Okay, so this is also about reducing stigma, and I see this working in the hospital for a couple of decades. And I try to train patients to realize that the brain, the mind, is like any other organ. It's not who we are. But through meditation and awareness, you can observe it. You can witness that it's doing. Just like you can pay attention to your breath, you can pay attention to your heartbeat. You can feel that digestion is happening, things are happening. And we hallucinate a self in the middle of all that. We hallucinate an ego. Probably through evolution, those organisms that had a strong sense of ego survived. And so it wasn't easy to find natural selection. To just sit and feel one with the universe wasn't necessarily going to be a genetic trait that would be passed on. Those people were vulnerable predators. <laughs> but there, there's a very interesting TED talk about the case against reality. And this scientist set up computer experiments where the subjects playing are tested for acquiring truth about the experiment, the paradigm, or fitness. And it turns out that you survive in this paradigm, and not based on understanding the reality, but by based on accomplishing goals. So evolution doesn't work to bring us closer and closer to reality. It just helps, us, helps to reinforce certain delusions so that we can play the game well, like reproduce and survive. So just because natural selection might have weeded out people who didn't have much of an ego, doesn't mean that's necessarily the goal or the truth of existence. Thank you. So I did watch your TED talk and it was massive. Um, thank you for doing that. Um, wow, well, that just brought up like a whole other bag of tricks because. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Will. I personally believe in and know examples of people that actually are able to control their digestion and the rate at which they're it's, it's a practice, and I think it's something. Most people to the point where I attain, but I do believe it's possible, and I think that is how we strive to put things within us. It just depends on how we want to educate Putting that aside, the real question I wanted to ask you is was I misquoting you? I think what I heard you say when you were speaking was.
thoughts just come that we are not really propelling those. Um, I spend a lot of time with children. And when I know this, and one of the reasons I'm really drawn to children is that I find that they don't seem to have those ongoing, incredibly repetitive thoughts. They are very much in the here and now. How comfortable they are in their seat, or whether they want to be on the floor, or if they're hungry at the moment, or if they have to pee. Just kind of whatever that is, they're not preoccupied with all of that. So if the thoughts are not coming from us, because I believe that they're learning behaviors that we choose to engage in and we choose to repeat, where are they coming from? Good question. So it's estimated that adults have 60,000 thoughts per day. 90% of them are repetitive, 80% of them are negative. <laughs> now, you look at your dog, for instance. When the dog gets sad, it's very much rooted in the present moment. Would you agree? So, like, if something good happens for the dog, then forget about that past sadness. But don't hold grudges. Cats are different. Cats are different. <laughs> <laughs> they seek revenge. <laughs> But dogs, at least, it's almost like when you see things happening in nature, we still create a subject. We might say something like, it's raining outside. Why do we need the it? You know, it's just rain. Even other things that we do, we turn verbs into nouns. A smile isn't a noun. A smile is a verb, and there isn't necessarily like one subject doing that. There's facial muscles. So where do these thoughts come from? They're programs. They're algorithms. Emotions are algorithms, and thoughts are algorithms. And even the thought, I will control my heart. Even the thought, I will go to India, and I will meditate, and I will find a master, and I will learn how to do these things. Where did that thought come from? Did I choose to think that? I did. But would I have done it if I didn't have the parents I had? Would I have done it if you gave me a different brain? You know, would I have done it if I had different genetics? If I had different environmental experiences? If I didn't walk into a bookstore called Transitions and see this book called Autobiography of Yogi and take it off the shelf and read it and I think I should go to India. Would I have done it if Another musician didn't play for me a song uh, from a group called the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And then I say, why is it called Mahavishnu Orchestra? Well, because the British guitarist went to India. You see what I'm saying? So the thoughts are coming from genetics, from programs, and from the environmental influences. And while I may think I have some control in that, it's largely a hallucination because there are so many more environmental factors and there are so many genetic factors that I have no control over. I didn't choose my brain, I didn't choose my parents, and I didn't choose the environment that I get to grow up in. And all of that shapes the thoughts that come. But once the thoughts come, we take credit for it, good or bad. And that's kind of where the problem is. If we didn't take so much credit for it, that would be humility. Humility is not thinking less about ourselves. 
It's about thinking about ourselves less. <laughs> I think that's what C.S. Lewis said. Thank you. Great, you want to kind of put a bow on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to give one of the practices that I do that helps me recognize this awareness about myself. First of all, I work in, in the idea that I am energy, space, and consciousness. So I am not this. This is just what I've created to carry me around. But... The lamp. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't... I don't have the thought in my head of I think X, Y, and Z, which I used to. But I, I carry now something in me thinks this. And it's not me. It's not the energy, space, and consciousness that I truly be that's thinking that. It's something in me thinking that. And that may come from my awareness of the couple, three tables over at the restaurant and what they're thinking. You know, because I'm a large and aware being. Yeah. And so I pick up from all over the place. But that's something in me. Can I just add one thing there before we conclude that? The I-ness is a thought. If you're asleep, in deep sleep, not dreaming, there's no person anymore, there's no I. There has to be thoughts for there to be an I, for there being self. Where is the person in deep sleep? There's no sense of shape, form, anything anymore. But there's darkness, because it's still ignorant. So when that same experience is there with the inner light, uh, with identification with the inner light, then that's what is meant by enlightenment. That's why it's called enlightenment. So if there's a consciousness. In deep sleep, there's no consciousness. So it's just darkness, but there's still no I. So we'll conclude with a little practice of meditation to try to create a sense of that inner light, that, that feeling of how to tend to nurture it. So if you wouldn't mind sitting straight in your seat, and close your eyes. First, let's get acquainted with this candle, with this lamp of our body. Notice what it feels like to be sitting in a chair. Bring more attention to the sensation of subtle pressure between your legs and the seat and where your feet touch the floor. Let the tiny facial muscles around your eyes relax. If your tongue is pressed against the roof of your mouth, relax, release it, maybe place it behind the upper teeth. Breathe through your nose if possible. Let your shoulders relax. Let your arms hang like heavy curtains. And then bring your attention to breathing. There's electricity in the body. There's light in the body. But it needs the oxygen. This is the most immediate link to life.
to each inhalation, try to feel as though it is an offering to the inner light. With each exhalation, try to feel that the darkness of ignorance is dispelled.